0: You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek.
1: Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We're here to talk all about the legend well, he considers himself a legendary artist now. He's been, you know, in the industry for probably close to 35 years. So I guess that qualifies, so, you know, we're talking about John Byrne and, you know, he's an artist, he's a writer, he's an inker. He pretty much is even, he does his own books and everything now. So he does, you know, he does the whole industry and John, you know, is a fan favorite to many and you know it's going to be a lot of fun because he's done you know he's shaped the industry that we're reading still today and you know he has definitely echoes all throughout the industry and speaking of echoes through the industry let's say hey to Mr. Mike
2: Gordon howdy
1: how's it this week sir you sound a little hoarse
2: uh, yeah well I was gonna say this uh yeah I'm uh I, I well, you know, it was a con weekend, right? So you know, I did a lot of talking and uh, got a little, only a little sleep. So, um, uh, so yes, I think I could uh, make it through this episode, and I'm glad to do so. I had a great time at the convention, which I'll talk about later. And um, yeah, I'm i excited to talk about John Byrne, as you mentioned. He's literally, I mean, he formed a company called like an imprint called Legend, so that tells you a lot about who he. Is. Mm -hmm.
1: exactly that's how he thinks of himself in his own mind so it's perfect
2: (laughs) wow so he's never going to be on this show now
1: did you really ever think he'd be on our show well if he was
2: going to be at all now he's definitely not because you know I mean I've heard he takes things a little personally
1: a little bit he wouldn't sign a friend's reprint of one of his comics it's like no if you want me to sign it bring me the original I'm not going to sign a reprint so we're not even going to go there Ouch. yeah so But, you know, we definitely want to hear from you guys. What is your experience with John Byrne? Did you guys have good experiences with him? What is your memories of him? Were you an X-Men fan? Were you a Superman fan? Were you, you know, so many different things? Fantastic Four. Iron Fist, you know, a lot of different stuff he's had his fingers in. You know, he's even done Star Trek for all you Trekkies out there. So, you know, please write us at EarthStation1 at com. We definitely want to hear from you. Of course, we want to say hey and thank you to all our patrons out there. We just posted today up there a special interview with uh, Jason Delatori actually, interviewed by his wife, Rita. And talking about all the different projects they have going on. And it's exclusive for the Patreons. So pretty cool. And we've been giving also our patrons previews and early releases of podcasts. And actually the podcast panel from South Carolina Comic Con is next week going to be going up on our Patreon. So something else to listen to. If you've ever wanted to do a podcast or wanted to get advice from us here on the net- the network, We have, you know, myself, Mike Gordon was on it, Mike Faulkner, and also our friend, a couple different other podcasters appeared on it. So it's pretty cool. So we have, you know, some really interesting stuff going on for our patrons and we thank you guys. This is how financially the ESO network stays afloat. You know, you guys, you know, for as little as 25 cents a week, you can, you know, listen to early content released and, you know, we already have stuff going on with ESO network riffs. So we got the third episode already in the planning stages. The first two episodes have been, you know, gotten some very good feedback on and, you know, that's available to all patrons and all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash ESO network and just sign up. And, you know, with your help, ESO Network just succeeds more and more every day, and we thank you guys for it. All right, let's get started though with this week's France and Raves, where we have a lot to talk about. What do you got for us, Mikey?
2: Well, um, you know, I, I've been to uh, recently, uh, you know, as I mentioned, at a convention this weekend, and uh, I uh, saw a lot of cosplayers, a lot of great costumes, and uh, I've been taking a lot of pictures for. Uh, the ESO network Instagram, uh, over the last, uh, couple of conventions that I've been at. So, Greenville a couple of weeks ago, and then MetrothamCon this past weekend, taking pictures of a lot of cosplayers. And I know that, uh, there used to be some, some heat that, uh, cosplayers got. Uh, regarding conventions and their presence at uh, especially uh quote-unquote comic conventions and it seems to me that that has kind of died down a little bit but i'm kind of curious mike what what do you how do you feel about about customers and cosplayers at conventions in general
1: i actually like them but You know, it's part of the fun of going to the cons and seeing the creativity for people and, you know, seeing costumes there from the really well-done professional stuff all the way down to the stuff you could tell is homemade and the people who took care. And, you know, even people who, you know, just throw things together last moment. I just, I appreciate all of them and I like it. But, you know, I didn't like it for a few years when sometimes the cosplayers We're getting more billing than like the celebrities or the comic artists or writers that were at the cons too. You know, and I don't know. I just you know it got ugly for a bit, and I think it's maybe calmed down just a bit.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, man, I can remember. Uh, when all I would hear about, especially from uh, independent comic folks, was just like you know they were annoyed by uh, all the cosplayers that were at conventions and everything like that. And to be honest, I never, uh, I never joined that that band myself. Um, I feel like um, they just have just as much right to be at a convention as I do, um, and. I think uh, I think they it's it's good they're, they're so you know I've seen cosplayers now young and old um, so it, it but definitely it's more fun or I shouldn't say it's more fun I should say I, I definitely know that it, or recognize that among young people um, sounds so old now young people you youngins back in my day but it it just. I mean the enthusiasm and the passion and the fun they're having dressing up as these characters. And yes, they might not have followed them since their debut in 1944, but they might not have every single issue. They might not, but they do have some love and interest in the character because they're putting on their outfit, you know? So if nothing else, they like how they look aesthetically. Um, And and just the energy. It's just fun to see. I mean, when, when, and you know, when you go up and you talk to someone uh, and ask to take their picture nine times out of 10, they are like, Woohoo, thank you. You know, like, thank you for, you know, for acknowledging that uh, I put a lot of work into this. Um, oh,
1: very much so. But you, there were times when I've, you know, seen people go up to cosplayers and they're like, you know, like this, it's like, Dude, what are you at the show for if you don't want people to take your picture?
2: Yeah, I don't run across that that often. I mean, everybody has like a bad minute, right? Or a bad day or something like that. So like if you're if they're like, you know, in the bathroom, then yeah, it's probably not the best time to like ask them to take a picture. Um, if they're eating, you know, I kind of try to respect their boundaries. I mean, yes, they are there in costume. And yes, they probably do want to have their picture taken, but not every single second, right? So I if they're at a table and they're kind of shopping around I kind of wait till they're done um or or just you know politely I mean they they it is amazing uh, to to see you know uh, especially the range I mean yes you have your deadpools then your and your harleys um but I think you know the the fact that a lot of people now want to like do something different or they the mashups that they come up with that are really fascinating where they're inspired to do like yes they'll do Deadpool but they'll do something you know sort of different with Deadpool a different take on Deadpool or a different take on Harley and they bring themselves into it and now it's not so much a question of ooh what is that person cosplaying it's like ooh what mix of stuff are they doing because I don't know and that looks cool so I think there's there's a lot more creativity to it and, um, I think now we're also kind of, uh, just, uh, looking at it like, uh, saying, hey, there are now people who are professional cosplayers. And this is what they do for a living. And they go around and they, they, they help people with costumes. They do cost, they do, they get paid to be at, a, at places. They do ju- judging of, uh, cosplay contests. They, they, um, they do panels and they help out with, uh, tips on cosplayers. And I think now it's become a legitimate, um, a uh, sort of a legitimate profession in fact, one of the cosplayers I talked to this past weekend is out of- C- Canada, and uh, she's now got a visa uh to be a cosplayer in the united States and she's the first person to ever have a cos uh, like a visa acknowledged like the government acknowledged that cosplaying is a profession that she can get a visa for so that's that's pretty cool.
1: No, it is pretty cool, and it's neat to see how it's grown and such. But the thing is, you don't, you know, I think cosplay is its own beast, and some of it's gotten very ugly in some ways. But I still, like I said, I'm more loving when we go to places like South Carolina Comic-Con and seeing all the different cosplays. And Dragon Con, I remember few years ago when we you know it was the first time i saw stan lee at dragon con so this is probably 2008 2009 and stan said you know it almost feels like a dragon con there's more people dressed in costume than not and you know and it's true in some ways and it's you know it's just a blast
2: yeah i think it also at least as far as my perspective goes Um, I didn't start going to conventions until much later in life. Uh, So, and uh, pretty much my convention experience was mostly um, around Dragon Con. Uh, I went to my first Dragon Con like 20 some years ago, and I've been ever since. And Dragon Con, even from like as early as I was going there, 20 some years ago, was still extremely cosplay heavy even back then before cosplay was like i don't even think it was called cosplay then um and so i think and i thought it was a unique thing that i thought was really cool about i mean sure i'd been to star trek conventions and people were wearing starfleet uniforms but that was way different than going to a convention or going somewhere and seeing spider-man and and uh you know, like uh, witchblade and walk around, and and people were not getting paid for it. They were just doing it because they love that character, and somewhat they love some of the attention. Um, so, um, so to me, I thought that was one of the things that made Dragon Con unique and very cool, and that I always wanted to go there because, in addition to the panels and everything like that, just seeing people dress up and put the energy into costumes that they they really uh, wanted to carry across was. Was a the highlight was a highlight of the show, and I I still feel that way. Um, and I, I feel that every every convention is different, but those conventions that you know are are supportive of the fans, like you said, SC Comic Con, and just the one I was at this past weekend. They're little local shows, and it's it's cool to see. I mean, these people that are going to be dressed up, they don't they don't expect to be you know, professionally, um, cosplayers. They just sort of go in there to have fun and a good time. Um, now, are they necessarily buying comics? No. So is that frustrating as an indie comic creator? Sure. But, I mean, that's no more so than the person who's there to buy, you know, a T-shirt or just get an autograph from a celebrity. So, I mean, there's uh, the, the it's up to the convention to bring in as many people as possible and and sort of support a lot of different fandoms. And I think cosplay now is its own fandom just as much as anything else is.
1: Oh, very much so. And, you know, it's the same thing as podcasting. It's the same thing as, you know, LARPing. And it's the same thing as, you know, gamers. Now you have cosplayers and it's just another, you know, asset of the whole community. And I think it's, I think it's great as it grows and, You have little kids, you have older people, you have people of all shapes and sizes and, you know, it's all inclusive and it's pretty neat to see.
2: Now um, I, despite the fact that I have been around cosplayers my entire life, et cetera, et cetera, I have never cosplayed. (laughs) Um, I have never uh, worn a costume to uh, uh, a convention um, I mean, I dress, uh, you know, someone could argue that, uh, my, um, my, uh, fez and, uh, Hawaiian shirts are, 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 costume. And, and I guess in some ways they might be, uh, associated that way, but I'm not actually, you know, dressing up as, uh, as something else specific. So I don't really call myself a costumer in that sense. Um, but, um, but I know you have, Mike.
1: Oh, I've done it multiple times, all the way from I think my second Dragon Con. I've cosplayed. I when I went as as Silent Bob. And you know, when William was little, him and I did the Blues Brothers. William, as he got older from that point on, he pretty much every year he's cosplayed at something. And then two years ago at Dragon Con, I went as the dude. It was only fitting, you know.
2: <laughs> right. And
1: so, and from this point on, I'll just try to go as a professional podcaster as my cosplay.
2: Yeah, so. well, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a, one, an easy one to spot.
1: Well, exactly. And then, you know, hell, you know, I think the greatest honor you must have seen is when somebody cosplayed as Tiki Zombie for you.
2: Yes, absolutely. I was about to mention that. I mean, I, even though I haven't done it myself, having someone uh, pick my character to spend the time, energy, money to cosplay is was just a, a thrill. I mean, that's just that's that's right up there with you know people who get tattoos of your stuff. Not that I've had that happen before, but yeah, um, but, <laughs> but um, uh, yes, that's uh, yeah, and I could actually say that. I mean, that's that gives me. I mean, that to me is a, is a great example of how well I regard cosplayers and how much I do think that they do have a function at um, at conventions. I mean, look, oh, yeah. these, these conventions are not easy to run, and anything that can encourage people to come and hang out and have a good time I think is welcome. And, and uh, a cosplayer's money to get in is just as good as a comic book fan's money, and if it helps keep the convention running and more people are attracted to go there because of uh, you know, seeing people dress up or getting a chance to dress up yourself, then so much the better.
1: Exactly. And that's one of the great things about it is, you know, more the merrier. There's no shortage. So I'm
2: glad uh, to see that uh I'm glad to see that it seems like that sort of quote-unquote controversy has has died down a bit um and uh that we're not hearing about oh cosplayers are ending you know comic conventions for for the the worst i mean it's it's just a bad thing for conventions everywhere and i'm glad that that's that's pretty much a like a a, a dead controversy people have moved on to a crap about other things but um yeah, I was just I was thinking about this that this weekend and and how much I I enjoy it. If I went to a convention and nobody dressed up, I think that would be kind of sad.
1: Well, truthfully though, I I'll look down on a con that promotes somebody like Yaya or Ricky or stuff above somebody like Neil Adams or John Byrne who we're talking about tonight or you know something like that who are true legends in the industry. And, you know, that's just, that's myself and, you know, but I respect what these people do, but do I think, you know, at a comic show, they should be, you know, pushed up above, you know, celebrities like in the industry? No, I don't, Hmm. but I'm all for cosplayers being there.
2: I think it's exactly. just a matter of, you know, I mean I, I think look if uh, if a convention wants to have wrestlers, if a convention wants to have paid cosplayers and celebrities, if a convention wants to have voice actors, if they want to have regular actors, if they want to have directors, short filmmakers, musicians,
1: podcasters,
2: podcasters exactly, then I say the more the merrier. Bring them all Exa- together and put uh, them exactly. in one big old soup. Exactly. Nerd we soup. like
1: being we like being stewed. It's
2: yes. Awesome. Nerd stew. The nerds do con or something. I don't know. Exactly. So
1: definitely, you know, something worth checking out and, you know, definitely, you know, bring the costumes on. I'm already looking forward to seeing what cosplay we could see at DragonCon in 2019.
2: Absolutely. Well, it's one of the things that we've definitely um, added to, again, once again, this year, I'm making it a point to uh, make sure that we hear from at least one cosplayer um, uh, spotlight on a segment of the Dragon Con Report. So uh, cosplayers, if you're out there and you are uh, excited about Dragon Con, then uh, reach out to me so you can be on the Dragon Con Report this year.
1: Sounds completely right. And the new Dragon Con Report for March will be available probably right after this episode goes live. So check it out, folks. All right, with that being said, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment with the Geek Seeds.
3: with this week's box office buzz. We've got a brand new Disney live action adaptation coming to theaters this weekend, which is Dumbo. And is, of course, about a magical baby elephant who can fly. This adaptation is being directed by Tim Burton, who's been a little hit or miss in recent history, kind of at least to me. But I think this could be an interesting fit for him with the circus atmosphere. So kind of curious to see what he brings to this classic Disney story. I don't know if I'll get a chance to see this one in theaters. Um, The first trailer actually made me oddly emotional. There was something about Dumbo's really sad eyes. So I do really want to rent this one. But we're getting to the time of year where things are starting to pick up at the theaters. So I don't know if I'll get a chance to see this one. But I'm definitely interested in renting it. We don't have a whole lot else in theaters this weekend. But we do have a comedy called The Beach Bum starring Matthew McConaughey. I'm going to quote directly from Rotten Tomatoes here. It's described as the misadventures of Moondog, which is the character played by Matthew McConaughey, who is billed as a rebellious rogue. So that kind of sounds interesting. It also stars Snoop Dogg and Zac Efron, among others. Not getting super great reviews, um, being criticized for its unfocused story, but kind of sounds not quite like my cup of tea. But it's out there if you're interested. And finally, on DVD this week, um, Aquaman is finally coming to home video. I only got a chance to see this movie once when it was in theaters, so I'm looking forward to renting it again. The thing about Aquaman is, is it a flawless movie? No, but I did really have a fun time watching this. And I think it's another step in the right direction for uh, DC's cinematic universe. Definitely not as strong a film as Wonder Woman, But again, like I said, I think it is a step in the right direction. Um, There's been a lot of talk amongst fans about the DC Cinematic Universe, and they've had some ups and downs. But I think they're finally kind of starting to find their footing and developing the kind of tone in movies that they're going to go for. And it looks like Shazam is going to be another fun one. I'm hearing lots of good buzz about that. So hopefully this is a sign of many more good things to come for the DC Cinematic Universe. And that's it for this week. If you're looking for more entertainment-related content, be sure to check out my blog, boxofficebuzzab.wordpress.com. This week I'm going to be taking a look at the Disney-Fox merger and what that might mean for the entertainment industry and some of our favorite franchises.
4: Hey gang, are you looking
5: for another podcast to listen to? Well, you're in luck. The Nerdy Laser
4: is a podcast, and we specialize in 90s nerd culture, but we don't leave anything out. If something is cool and nerdy, we will talk about it. So join myself, Richard Yule, and a variety of guests
5: on the Nerdy Laser podcast, available on iTunes, Podbean, and the ESO Network.
1: welcome back to Earth Station One. Now it's time for the Geek Seek segment. This time out, we have Michael Bailey joining us. Welcome to the show, sir.
5: Ah, thank you very much for having me.
2: Welcome back to the station. Yes, it's been too long, sir.
5: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the the it's the beaming technology that gets me. I, uh, <laughs> I always side with Bones on that one.
2: I understand. I understand. And the shuttle just takes too long. <laughs> the um. It's nice to have a reunion of the uh, a mini uh, reunion of the mics, the council of mics here. <laughs> so always a pleasure for those people who may not be familiar with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. Uh,
5: I am a podcaster, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> online <laughs> contributor. Uh, I, I have been podcasting for almost twelve years now. Wow! And, uh, you can find me at fortressofbailey2 dot com. That's where all my sh- shows are i talk about superman and batman and all kinds of comics and every once in a while other stuff i'm in fact planning a thing on a musical uh if i can get that that done within the next year or so uh, which be a little outside of my normal wheelhouse but i think i can handle it Uh, and i'm also part of the superman homepage, and have been so since 2001 wow Good Lord. I <laughs> started out writing reviews and now every Tuesday we do a live thing on YouTube. So it's, uh, it, 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 uh, my face is out there and I'm not sure if I'm still comfortable with that.
2: I'm, uh, I'm getting the impression just from the, the very little bit I've known, for, you know, that we've talked just a couple of minutes, uh, that you are a yeah. big industry. Uh, uh,
5: <laughs> I would hope so. Otherwise the action figures and posters and the uh, mouse pad are probably a huge waste of money. Has that been a lifelong. Well, you know, it, it's you? funny. I I joke that um, I my deep dark secret is I started out life as a Batman fan. Uh You know, growing up in the late seventies and early eighties, Adam West is on TV, the Super Friends are on TV, and I and I just had this love for Batman. But in nineteen eighty seven, I started picking up the Superman books full time, and that just kind of switched me. And I I, I like to say I, I went from Old Testament to New Testament at that point.
2: Interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting time period because that's if I remember correctly, that's like uh, right before well, a few years before the death, right? Uh-huh.
5: Yeah, I was there 5 years before the death, so I was I was in the prime position. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when all of that went down, and now I have done way too much research about how that whole thing happened so uh,
2: well, it is a significant event, not just in superman history but in I think in in culture and pop pop culture and comic history
5: well, luckily, nothing else in the world was happening uh in in September of ninety two when it was announced <laughs> and it was an international story he, the, I, I I uncovered some headline news articles about it. Uh, From that time period, which uh, involves some very ugly suits uh, on the part of the uh, people behind the desk. But, yeah, that, that, you know, it's funny. People still talk about it. And, you know, other things have happened to Superman since then. But that seems to be the thing everyone goes to.
2: Yeah, it really was a it was a game changer. I don't think a lot of us knew at the time how big a deal it was going to be.
5: Yeah, and then DC went, the, the the thing I love about that story more than anything else is it, the reason why it broke big is that a reporter for Newsday, which is a paper on Long Island or Long Island, uh, if you want to, I guess if I want to pronounce it correctly, was a comic fan and he went into his shop and he saw. Uh, Advance Comics, which was the previews for Capital City, which was a distributor from the nineties, and he's like, "Hey, I could write a story about this." Contacted DC Comics. DC did not want him to do the story. Uh, really? Yeah, they weren't ready. They they. Oh, I see. Gotcha. You know, if he did the story, people flooded to the comic shops and on the stands is a story about Superman dealing with domestic abuse. So you know, there, there is no death, um, death comic to be had so it created this kind of frenzy so by the time in november because it came out on november 18th uh hit it was just like at this fever pitch and of course because superman's a cultural icon everybody had an opinion on it
2: it uh yes i can remember buying it in the on the shelves myself uh seeing it there um was that that was before or after nightfall
5: that was before nightfall nightfall and okay. night, one of the the common misconceptions is that nightfall was a Batman's response to the death of Superman. But if you look at how nightfall fell, they are so close to each other and the way comics are prepared, you know, the stories and everything are prepared. There's no way that it could have been a, uh, a response to it. It just was kind of happenstance. Now afterwards there, you know, like people were like Spider-Man, the clone saga from Spider-Man was Marvel saying, let's do our death of Superman.
2: And I believe after that, that was the contest for Wonder Woman mm-hmm. uh, and then the um uh, the Hal Jordan um. Emerald Twilight <laughs> yeah they thank you thank you for that yeah so yeah they they knew they had a good thing going
5: <laughs> yeah everybody had their game changing moment and some worked out better than others so um so let me
2: ask you this uh, in particular with Superman uh, you know since it has been a long time for that character with you has as you've gotten into more and more, you know, sort of behind the scenes and podcasting, and and, and just being a representative of sort of a, a fan representative of of that character, has has his your views on him changed
5: at all? Actually, no. the The, the funny thing is, uh, after two thousand thirteen, when Man of Steel came out, uh, when the Superman Civil War. Occurred on online. It was it was a brutal weekend uh, when that movie came out. Superman fandom ripped itself apart. I, I literally sat there that weekend watching Facebook and and Twitter and watching my friends not be friends anymore because they're arguing mm. over the movie. Uh, but you know, with all of that, you know, you had Smallville, which uh, was on for ten seasons and kind of brought in a bunch of uh, new fans. And, you know, you have all these different iterations of the character, but my perception of him has pretty much stayed the same through all of that. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I, you know, in all the podcasting that I've done, I've talked about Superman more than anything else. And because of that, I, I get people saying things like, you know, I really wasn't into the character until I heard you talk about him. And uh, I I look at that as the best witnessing that I can do for the character. I'm not trying to get anybody into the character. I'm just talking about the character. And I think that fits the character more than anything else because Superman, he's one of those weird fictional characters because he's an icon, but you have to tell stories about him. And because you have to tell stories about him, you can't always treat him like an icon. Uh, so when the creators have a good handle on who he is, the stories just kind of write themselves when they try to fit him in to uh, his round peg into a square hole, the stories don't work out well, work out that well, but through all of that, who who I look at as who this character is uh, pretty much stays the same. Now, sometimes I will admit, you know, if you ask yourself, what would Superman do? You have to clear quantify that cuz sometimes what would superman do counts as wrapping a gun around somebody's neck and throwing them out of a building so uh, as he did in the golden age so <laughs> but other than that no i it's it's funny i i look at him as the same thing pretty much since i was 11 years old now i've gotten to know like you said i've gotten to know more about the history of the character but my 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 grasp of who that character is and what he represents uh, really hasn't shaken all that much.
2: As far as, uh, would you say, as far as his appearances now in, in movies, uh, comics, as well as TV, um, is now a great time to be a Superman fan?
5: Uh, right now is actually an excellent time to be a Superman fan. If you would have asked me that question five years ago, I would have had a very different answer for you. Yeah. But right now... Uh, I, I think I don't know what's going to happen with the movies, but as haphazard as Justice League was as a film, that was a turning point for the care That that particular version of the character.
2: You actually saw him uh, smile.
5: Yeah, exactly. Um,
2: <laughs> In a weird sort of like non-mustachy way. Exactly.
5: Uh, but you also have the Supergirl television series, which is kind of carrying on the S, and Tyler Hoechlin has played the character on that series several times. And I think he, their take on that character is the closest to the one that lives in my head that I've seen put on the screen. Uh, And the comics right now, I got to tell you, Brian Michael Bendis likes this character and it shows on the page because he's writing Superman in action. And every month I can go to both of those and know that I'm going to enjoy myself. And we're heading into the – since Rebirth, it's pretty much been that way in the comics. I've, I've, I've loved getting the new comics instead of kind of dreaded the addiction that I have. Uh, but now is a, is a great time to be a Superman. Well, I was going mean, to
1: actually ask you that, Michael, was yeah. do you think it was a stroke of genius to bring back the old Superman instead of the new 52?
5: Uh, it was – I think the stroke of genius – was that they didn't just bring him back and say, this is Superman. Uh, they, th- It's a complicated story. We definitely don't have time to get into everything. But when he came back, the new 52 Superman was still around. And then the new 52 Superman died and he took his place. And through a very convoluted uh, series of events involving Mr. Mikshiaz Pitalik, it was basically undone and it was always him but it took them like a year to do that almost so to me it the smartest thing they did was not say okay this was a complete mistake let's just put let's just put the old guy back on the stage they kind of eased him out there and introduced his son and the the biggest object lesson from that is that for five years, they had done nothing but try to strip everything away from Superman and make him younger and edgier and hipper. And the one that the fans responded to was the 30 something with a wife and a kid. And (laughs) that's the one people like, because I think, and this is, this is, was my learning. uh, My object lesson is that at the end of the day, we want a Superman that's established. We want a Superman that is in, in job when we see him and we had gotten nothing but like year one type stories. And, you know, you're you're impatient because you want to get to the point where he's Superman and everyone likes him and everyone respects him. But no, we have to do these things where everyone's scared of him and don't get me started on man of steel. But, um, I th- I think it was uh, a stroke of genius that they did it the way they did it.
2: Uh, if everybody had a uh, fifth dimensional imp <laughs> that could just solve all the story <laughs> problems and plot holes that needed to be addressed, <laughs> I, well, I agree. Well, very cool. Um, uh, Mike, I think he is primed and ready to. Uh, <laughs> To answer the hard questions now.
1: I don't know. I don't know about that. I think he <laughs> can go on and keep on talking about Superman for hours. So
5: yes, yeah. but there are other things to talk about.
1: <laughs> no, very true. So all right, Michael, are you ready for your first question in the geek seat?
5: Mm-hmm. All right, yes I
1: am. All right, Mike, is he strapped down?
2: Oh yes, I thought you were talking to me for a second there. I forgot. Yes, okay, yes, he okay. is strapped down. I thought, I'm like, I'm doing this geek seat again. <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, you know, it's fun because three of us are named Michael. So it's going to be always fun. <laughs> you know, at, at least when we have Faulkner on, he's baby Mike. So it's okay.
5: <laughs> That's true.
1: So we have to give, I guess he, this guy's going to be super Mike. So it's okay.
5: okay. I'm good with that. <laughs> All right.
1: Michael Bailey, what was your favorite geek out moment?
5: Getting William Cat to sign. The replica of the instruction booklet from the Greatest American Hero uh, box set that my wife got me. Wow! Um, There was uh, I I handed it to him, and I don't know if he had never seen it. He looked kind of surprised. I'm like, "Would you? Would you make it out to Mike? Don't lose this." And and it was just this, you know, because I'm the type of guy that if I'm going to get something signed, I want it to have some value. I mean, anybody can walk up with a book and have, you know, a signature on it. But this is like something big with a show that I was absolutely in love with as a child and have retained a love for into adulthood. So, yeah, that was definitely that.
1: It would have been great if you would have played that off and gone,
5: you found it. You found the instruction. <laughs> and ran away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what was your most disappointing geek out moment though?
5: Batman V Superman.
1: What about, was, what about it?
5: I, uh, I liken Zack Snyder as to the guy that you, uh, that comes around your social group and a lot of people don't like him and you convince everybody. no, 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 no. He's cool. He's cool. Let him in. Let him in, and, and, and everything will be fine, and then you find out he's been hitting on your wife, like, the entire time. Uh, <laughs> I, I I bought into what they were laying down with Man of Steel, and they just completely and utterly dropped the ball uh, in, in Batman v Superman. It was such a mess of a film, and such a... <laughs> My a good friend of mine says it's the Superman film for people that don't like Superman. What? And I'll agree with.
1: Your mom's name Martha.
5: My mom's <laughs> name Martha. Uh, nah. I was waiting in Justice League for Aquaman and and Bruce to have the Thomas moment, since both of their fathers were named Thomas.
1: Oh brother, Thomas! <laughs> oh man.
5: <laughs> what keeps you out the most? Why did you say that name. What geeks me out the most is when I am in the midst of either watching or reading something that's taking me a while like like in the middle of binging a series uh either watching this watching it or reading it there there is nothing like being in that zone where you're ju- I am just so completely loving what I'm doing that there's like this depression afterwards and I actually have to like spend like a week or two trying to find, figure out what I'm going to do next. And it's never as good. The first thing I do is never as good as the last thing I did. And then I have to stumble into it again, but there is nothing like being in that butter zone of you're just loving the show or loving the novel series or loving the comic series. And you just want it to last forever.
1: Oh, sure. Sure. We're doing that on multiple levels right now here at home. So I do understand that. I think it fits perfectly. (laughs) What turns your geek off?
5: Um, People that rain on other people's parades unnecessarily. And what I mean by that is if I go on, like today is a good example of it. I was expressing my problems with the Titans series that's part of the DC Universe app. That was me saying to the world, "I don't like this," but I would never go onto somebody else's post who is loving it and try to rain on that parade. I, I want them to have that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I I think there is a difference between being critical and being a jerk.
1: Oh yeah, just ruin it to and, make yourself feel better.
5: Yeah, and, and there's no there's no point in that, you know. It's a, going back to, to to Batman v Superman. There are people out there that love that film. But I would never go into any of their posts where they're talking about why they think it's the greatest thing ever and it's the rock their Church of Rao is built on uh, and say, no, it's stupid and you're stupid for liking it. I I, I hate that. It's it's, it's the thing that upsets me the most in geek culture. Uh,
1: This next question actually is pretty much a given. (laughs) What fictional character would you like to meet the most?
5: Uh, Lois, actually. Really? I, I, you know, meeting Superman would be intimidating. <laughs> I mean, you you have to get to know Superman, but Lois, man, I I, I kind of married Lois Lane in a way. My wife is constantly getting into trouble and has no problems telling people what she thinks. So,
1: touche, <laughs> touche. So,
5: so I, uh, I, I'd love to meet her because she's she's the one that caught his eye. You know, and we could go into the different iterations of Lois and, and how some of those are not as good as others. But at the end of the day, she's the one that of all of humanity, he's like her. And and why is that? So I, that would be kind of neat to find out.
1: Understandable. You'd surprise me with this. So what fixture character would you not like to meet? House. Oh, yeah. Well, the reasons for you to meet House in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: First of all, you'd be deathly <laughs> exactly, yeah. And you'd almost I,
1: I, be a I, do- death's doornail. And basically, you know, then he'd come up with a solution. Sometimes you'd be a limb or two less because he messed up or was too stoned to figure that out.
5: Exactly. But no, that type of personality of, of they're the smartest guy in the room. They know it and everything about their behavior just bothers you
1: (laughs) oh god yes god yes good good answer actually what's your favorite geek word phrase quote pose
5: i i this this i will go back to superman and it's kind of a paraphrasing that mark wade did in kingdom come it was originally in a novel written by elliot s magan and it's that there's a right and a wrong in the universe. And that distinction is not hard to make there. There's just a purity in that statement and it, and it distills the ethos of doing the right thing. Cause it's the right thing to do, not for the glory, not for the accolades, but because it's what needs to be done. That just turns. I just love that.
1: Understandable. What is your ideal geek occupation?
5: Man, if I could make money podcasting, I would love that. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, I mean seriously, if, if, if someone's like, I'm going to pay you close to what you're making now at your day job, but you just have to sit there and read comics and talk about them on the internet all day, that is just like, like I, being a writer would be cool, don't get me wrong, uh, but this is the passion so, I mean, and eventually I'd probably get sick of it and want to talk about other things, but still just, 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 I'd like to ride that wave for a couple of years at least.
1: No, totally understand that. Someday, my friend, someday, hopefully someone out there is listening and goes, I like all these guys. I like guys with the name, Michael, you know, <laughs> let's give them all podcast money. There we go. We need a sugar exactly. day. Exactly. Yes, we do. <laughs> What geek occupation would you not like to do?
5: I would not want to be editor in chief of either Marvel or DC comics.
1: Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: At all. No, no. Every decision you make would be ripped apart. Well, Especially nowadays. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and, and really you're, you're controlling a universe of characters that people are emotionally invested in. Uh, and let's, let's forget the political arguments right now, because that's a different, beast altogether but just you're making a decision based on the flash and you're like i think we need to go in this direction the sales are down let's do this and you're gonna have 50 people calling for your head within two minutes
1: let's kill off wally west hey that's a great idea
5: yeah i just i I just honestly think that that would be one of the worst jobs in publishing to have
1: exactly no totally agree with that and you know even back when Stan or Roy Thomas or Jim Shooter was doing Marvel or Julie Schwartz was doing DC, it was just like, they were thankless jobs. Really?
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I may not agree with everything Joey Q did, but I felt bad for him just about every day <laughs> that, that, that he was put in the position. I mean, he put himself there. Don't get me wrong, but still it's, you know, somebody has to man the guns and, you know, i just i just think i think we can go easier on them i don't think we have to let up on them but i think we could go easier on them
1: okay all right. all right michael are you ready for your final question of the geek seat yes i am all right this is for all the marbles dude so this makes it count do something super <laughs> what is your ultimate geek fantasy
5: I, you know, going back to the death of Superman, I would love to do a Ken Burns Civil War documentary on that event. And you could really do it, too, because it's not just that he died you know, you have to establish the, the post-crisis Superman and then talk about the people involved at the time and then talk about the lead up and the death itself and the aftermath and how they decided to do what they were going to do next and how they decided to do Adventures of Superman 500. You have the four Superman. I mean, you have enough people there uh, to talk to that I think you could get at least a three to four part documentary out of that. And I would love to be the guy that's kind of doing that, you know, conducting the interviews and you know, putting it all together. I don't know if I'd want to be on camera, but I would love to produce it at at the very least.
1: As long as you have Morgan Freeman doing the narration, (laughs) I think it'll go.
5: Now, if we're going to do Ken Burns, I got to get Peter Coyote to do that. Oh,
1: true, true. (laughs) (laughs) He did the civil war really well.
5: And it just, it just, and he, he, he's doing the Viet. he did the Vietnam one too, which I was starting to watch recently, uh, which is um, horrifying. Uh, but no I just did the only thing that I couldn't do is the letters home like from like the creators talking about how terrible it is to be out on the the battlefield and how they miss their wife and their hair and all that so
2: totally understand that just have the letters to the, just have the letters to the editor <laughs>
5: exactly
1: Exactly. well Michael got good news for you sir you've made it through the geek seat congratulations
5: I uh, if I can get these straps off, that would be great.
1: No, you're staying around for the next segment. But Mr. Mike Gordon, tell the young man what he's won.
2: You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth eight dollars and forty three cents.
5: Oh, good. Well, if I ever have to get like lunch one day, I guess I could turn around and sell that. <laughs> right. I would never do
2: that. I That's don't. I, do. I don't yeah, have those, the heart uh, to
1: tell him it's only valuable here on the station. <laughs>
2: Oh. Is that what those um polybagged issues of the death of superman still are worth now cuz are so many of those? <laughs> uh yeah, that's
5: probably about a, a 10 bucks. I mean just <laughs> I mean some people on eBay can get it for higher, but it's it's not worth the $30 it used to be like that. Right. Standard.
2: Well, very cool. It's uh great to have you with us once again and uh yeah, as Mike said, we will be talking to you... In- in a little bit more. Woo-hoo.
1: So let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in a moment. And we're going to be talking all about comic legend John Byrne. Wow.
0: Hey everybody, Michelle here with the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment, and today, of course, we say goodbye to Dick Dale, king of the surf guitar, who passed away a week ago Saturday at the age of 81. He had been in failing health for a long time. You may not think you know who he is, but uh, you do, you've heard him. His most famous track was called Miserloo, it's the theme to Pulp Fiction. Um, That tune is actually an old Middle Eastern folk tune that he reworked and he knew it because the king of surf guitar was actually a Lebanese American boy from Boston who moved to California at the age of 17 with his family and discovered two things he loved surfing and guitars Um, he developed a guitar style based on the the aggressive jazz drumming of Gene Krupa and nobody tore up picks dozens of picks at every performance guitars and amps the way he did and not only is he famous for his unique style of playing but he with leo fender helped to develop gear that that lasts now um he became leo's guinea pig as he called it he would blow through amps leo fender would go back build a more powerful amp bring it back dick would shred it again blow it out and uh, they kept working until they found an amp that worked. And also he uh, helped Leo develop the Strat guitar into the guitar it is today, to finding finding just the right wood that was strong enough to stand up to everything. And speaking of Strats, uh, David Gilmore, this May, he will be selling 120 of his guitars for charity including his uh, famous black Strat that was his go-to for years and years. Um, so if you have some money, put aside. Something to think about. Also, uh, Dave Davies' uh, fly, Gibson Flying V um, that he played on tour from 65 onward is going up for auction for the second time in about 15 years. Last time it sold for about 33k. expected to go for much more this time. This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment. Uh, I will have this information up on my blog soon, uh, iconicrocktalkshow.wordpress.com. And as always, we will catch you next time. I
4: fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, down, down on the as we went high. And it burns, burns, burns the ring of fire. The ring of fire.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Air Station One podcast. Now it is time for the main segment, and we are talking about comics legend John Byrne. Take it away, Mikey.
2: Yes, we are. And of course, you know, the the council or the mini council of Mike's is still here. Michael Bailey is still strapped to the chair. (laughs) And joining us also, we have, it's been way too long, Kyle Jones is on the show.
4: Hey, guys. Good evening, good morning, or whenever you might be listening to us. But for you guys and for me, good evening. How's everybody? Absolutely
2: great! How you been?
4: I can't complain. Reading comic books, going, seeing movies, getting ready for Game of Thrones. Can't can't complain.
2: There's a lot of cool stuff happening right now, right? It's
4: good Absolutely. to be the geek. <laughs> yes, it is. That's a good way to put it. Indeed, it it is. It's good to be a geek.
2: Well, good time to be a geek. I'm glad you could join us for this look at John Byrne uh, as we usually uh, start off with these segments. Uh, What was your, we'll start with you. What what was your introduction to John Byrne?
4: I guess my introduction would be back in the days of, um, you know, the original run that he did back on Fantastic Four. But really and truly, I think I was introduced to John Byrne with his legendary X-Men run with Claremont. Gotcha.
2: Yeah, that's understandable. It's amazing to me that that was as early as it was in his career.
4: Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, it's amazing to me that, you know, some of those stories that we're seeing talking about movies, um, the movies that we're watching, so much of that stuff is now what I think we all were watching as kids or reading as kids.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It really defined them, I think. Michael Bailey, what about you?
5: Uh, I know this is going to shock you, but uh, John Byrne on Superman is what got me into comic, got me collecting the character. Uh, I I stumbled upon it in the orthodontist's office because the orthodontist I went to, his waiting area was just lousy with comic books. And uh, I remember picking up this one book and and Superman just looked different. Uh, You know, I was used to like Kurt Swan and, and, and... that type of, uh, that type of art style. But this guy was built like a linebacker and just, you know, Ma and pa were alive and Lana knew who he was. And it was just like what my paradigms completely shifted here. Uh, so it was his run and he was, he was the first creator that I knew the name and was the first creator that I was disappointed because he left the book that I was reading.
2: Ah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, Mike, what about you?
1: Um, probably the same as Kyle. I discovered John when I was probably in middle school and he was just starting with X-Men. It was probably when he first introduced alpha flight for the first time. And so, yeah, I discovered him then. And I, it was interesting because they went from, you know, Dave Cockrum doing the new X-Men and seamlessly went into John Byrne. And, then it was the team of Byrne and Austin doing the artwork, and it was just like awesome to see
2: my uh mine is very unorthodox because uh my introduction to John Byrne was from an issue that I got of uh space nineteen ninety nine of uh from charlton comics uh back in the uh late seventies. And uh the cover was fantastic, uh and uh the story was pretty good. I was confused and I didn't find out much later, uh, that uh the, that there was two John Burns. There well, there's at least more. I mean there's more, but um uh it's almost like it's almost like the the they've got a popular name like Michael or something. Um but uh, uh who would have a, a name like that? God. Yeah, there's a a, a Johnny Byrne. Who is a writer who has written um, a lot of episodes of Space Nineteen Ninety Nine as well as Doctor Who, um, and uh, he. Yeah, and so I thought uh, that the comic was ru- written and done by the the guy who had actually written some scripts and worked on the show, uh, but uh, I found that out much later that it was different. John Byrne. So um, uh, and then my next introduction to him because uh, I, I was not uh, at all an X-Men guy, uh, or even a huge Marvel guy. Um, I think I've said before that my, um, my limited uh, view into Marvel was Spider-Man and I didn't really venture too much outside of that book. Um, but, uh, I did, uh, when he came over to DC to work on, uh, untold legends of the Batman It uh, it 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 got my attention, and uh it's one of my favorite uh, batman miniseries. so um so yeah that that was my introduction to him and then later he uh that's what i think it was like yeah I, I, reading later that i understand that that experience was not good for him so he did <laughs> yeah work again with d c for a while and i think we'll get in you know we'll get into as we discuss him um John burns had a um uh, an interesting uh, life as a comic creator full. Of- Fulls of highs and lows. Uh, uh, some of uh, some of which were his own doing, and others were just outside of his control. But uh, so yeah. Um, um, well, let's start. I guess with um, I mean, other than is the other than my like looking at his uh, Charlton Space Ninety Nine series. Is anybody else uh, familiar or uh, want to say anything about his career before Marvel uh, when he was working with? Charlton and some of the books before that. Nope. Okay. (laughs) He wasn't, I don't think he was, uh, you know, I don't think he was in it very long. I think uh, he, he broke in um, pretty early, uh, did some uh, to comics. He did, he broke in pretty early and did some, a few, like I said, a few Charlton comics, but I think within a year or two, he was uh, working in Marvel. Working with Marvel Team Up, which is a book that I I did like as well, because it you know co-starred Spider Man half the time. Although I didn't really know his work at that point. And at this point, he's mainly—if I'm not mistaken—he's mainly an artist, correct? He's not really writing his own. No, he
1: didn't start writing for many, many years until until further into the X Men era. He started then (laughs) co-writing with Chris and everything. And, but at this point he was just purely an artist and, you know, he was working on Iron Fist and he, you know, he did the Marvel team up stuff and, you know, it it was interesting because Byrne had an interesting style that I actually hearken very much similar to George Perez that, you know, he could draw almost any character and even a team book, he had no problem the characters look like they were supposed to look. Not like sometimes when you had like Frank Miller or, you know, some of the DC artists and stuff, where sometimes it's like, is that supposed to be Superman? Or is that supposed to be, you know, you know, is that supposed to be the thing? You know, oh Orange Rocks, it has to be, you know.
2: <laughs> I think I think you're right, Mike. And but in particular, I think, and I found sort of looking at some of his later stuff and comparing it to his early stuff, I think working with uh Um, specifically um, Terry Austin as an anchor really really helped with that helped define a lot of those characters
1: oh extremely so it was you know he you know he put his influence in right away when he got onto X-Men and you know he brought in you know Vindicator or you you know Jamie Hudson and he basically you know I think that was like the second issue of X-Men that Mm -hmm. he did. And, you know, this was, this was a character that he created, you know, when he was a kid, you know, this was, you know, basically supposed to be his captain Canada. And, you know, this was, you know, you know, he, it fit perfectly into, you know, his storyline and he had an affinity for bringing his characters and Chris was willing to, you know, basically bring in, you know, the whole thing with Alpha Flight, because those were basically John's characters.
5: Yeah, and it's also the the, how dynamic his art is. Uh, He can draw people just sitting around or he can draw a really good fight scene. And one of the things that I think that he kind of revolutionized and kind of made everybody else up their game on is flying characters. I mean, if you look at if you look at like the human torch in his fantastic forerun, the Human torch never really flew like that before, even under Kirby, who's you know the, the king of, uh, of dynamic comic book artists. But the way he had Johnny either banking or hovering or flying, and he did the same thing with Superman, where he did things with the cape that artists had never done before, so it made his work stand out as an artist. Like you you open the book, you know it's burned you know the you don't have to see the credits page it's it's obvious that it's his style and, and i and i like true. what you said that's about
4: how true. johnny was flying or even superman or wonder woman or whomever because it it seemed like i was just ready to see it jump off the page
1: mhm mm-hmm. exactly the detail he went into in each panel was and I've seen his pencils that he had done for early X Men stuff, and or his you know Iron Fist, and or his Luke Cage, and Power, Man, you know, and Iron Fist, and you know all the different things. And then when he got to the Fantastic Four, it was just like wow.
5: Well, it, with the FF, I mean, he could yeah. really break into the cosmic <laughs> more. I mean, yeah, he was doing that kind of with the Shi'ar, and you know the you know the what is that group called? The Imperial Guard. Oh yeah, I don't know why I blanked on that.
1: Oh, you mean uh, you know, the Legion of Superheroes?
5: Yeah, the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, he, oh, he could do a little bit of that. But the the FF was kind of Earth based. Well, I'll uh, I'll
1: go out and say this right now. I think John Burns' FF was was the best run of FF since Stan and Jack.
5: Oh yeah, I mean, he, I mean, what? There's nothing against him as a writer because I've loved his other work. But are you really going to put Wolfman's run or <laughs> Lynn <laughs> Wien's run up there? I mean, it's just uh, no. Yeah, it was, it was, it was. It's funny that when people talk about the history mm-hmm. of FF, they're like Stan and Jack created them, and then in the '80s, John Byrne did them. And there's just like this glossing over of the '70s completely.
1: No, it's true. But even since then, I don't think anyone's come close. And, you know, and, you know, I'll put money up against that. I, you know, I just think, and he, he had such love for the characters and it, he, he made the FF relevant again in the Marvel universe. And, you know, they were before that, they were almost like Roy Thomas was doing them and not, nothing against them. Cause I have, you know, all the FF omnibuses and, you know, all the different things, but I got, you know john when he took over he made them important again and he made them interesting and he evolved the characters they weren't stagnant again, you know like they were for so much time
4: oh yeah
5: well the invisible girl became the invisible woman under his watch 20 years after she was created Uh, and you know i i loved what he did with franklin one of my favorite artistic tricks was when he put the four and a half on, on Franklin shirts, just as this little, <laughs> like probably just more to amuse himself than anything. But when you look at how that run evolved, uh, you know his very first issue, which was like two thirty two, two thirty three, somewhere around that. In that ballpark, uh, you know he basically recreated yes. the first issue of Fantastic Four with how the characters are introduced, mm-hmm. uh, and from there he just he just had a ball in their world and. He brought She-Hulk in halfway through his run and it didn't feel weird. She fit right into that team.
2: Yeah, that that was the one thing I remember about his Fantastic Four Run because at the time he was also working on the thing as a solo mm-hmm. um uh book, and the thing was really getting huge. I think at that time he even had his own cartoon. Like the thing was really breaking out as far as being his own like a, a solo character. And so you needed somebody sort of to fill that that spot in Fantastic Four, and it is amazing how uh, She-Hulk uh, actually just fit right in there. And now I look back on it now, and it doesn't doesn't feel odd when I see like those images. No, not at all.
4: No, and if you if you think back, you look at any time, at least for me, any time you had a substitute, you felt like for me that person was a substitute. She-Hulk, totally, totally different. And I remember. You know, you went from the finale of the previous issue, so you got the cliffhanger, and then we jump forward because Secret Wars was, you know, going on, and we had to read Secret Wars to find out how She-Hulk got there. But you went from here's the three of them, and here's Johnny and Reed coming back, and here's She-Hulk wearing F- FL. Oh, extremely brilliant. so.
1: And they even brought in another member with, temporarily. It was with uh, Frankie Ray. Inferno. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she was, she was awesome. And she also was a great character and, you know, they did some great Galactus stories, but also burn, you know, he, for the first time in FF history, he changed the costumes.
5: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, also he has, there is a page uh, because I, I, I read his run all in one chunk in the summer of 95. And, I'm going through it. I'm going through it. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. But the, but he absolutely just sucker punched me. It was the end of the issue where Sue lost the baby. And it's this huge fight issue because you've got, like, the Hulk and Doc Ock and all these other characters. And then on that very last page, the entire page is black except this one square in the middle of the page. And it's a, and I'm basically announcing that she lost the baby. And it's just like... <laughs> Like, how could you do that to me? (laughs) Oh, oh,
1: exactly. And it was just, he he did not pull punches. That uh, 25th anniversary issue Mm -hmm. with the Puppet Master and Dr. Doom. And the FF had normal lives, but they were all living in this little, small, simulated world.
5: That was such a great story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it just, uh, Glenville... Mm-hmm. Was, was that because it was it was where johnny went to school and had a secret identity in the 60s because that was a thing for a while for some bizarre reason I mean, they're public in the main book but when he's going to high school he's got a secret identity like don't understand how that works, Dan, but go for it. Uh, but yeah, that that that's one of my favorites. I uh, and Frankie Ray, too. I mean, she was just Johnny's love interest that he turned into a herald of Galactus. I mean
1: Oh, I know. And I love the whole story that, you know, how it tied into the original human torch mm-hmm. with her origin. And it was just like, wow, this is awesome. But Byrne also, with his art style, did take chances. There was an issue of FF and folks we're going to talk about his other stuff don't worry but (laughs) ff when he did the whole story in the negative zone and the whole comic was sideways yeah you know and it was just it was just very forward thinking at that time
2: well i think this is the first time he really gets a chance to break out i mean he was he went on this huge historic run with claremont with the x-men right and uh, and that's just I mean, we didn't spend a lot of time on it, even though we could devote a whole podcast to it if we needed to, um, yes. because it's just so much like what people think of it as, as the X-Men, what the animated series did, what the movies pulled from like a lot of it, like 90 percent of it, I think, is done was originated with Claremont and Burns run because uh, you've got the Dark Phoenix saga, which is becoming a movie again this year. Um, days of future past, uh, you know, Wolverine rises to prominence, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, and then, but, you know, but even though he's on this historic run, uh, you know, he and Claremont are not getting along like, um, well, you know, (laughs) uh, they're, they're not, uh, they're not getting along like maybe the, maybe, um, some of the X Men characters are. So they're, they're feuding a lot. Um, I think towards the end it was just yeah. So they he had to move on. Uh, he well, works, I, I think it partly
1: there. was wasn't it mostly about the Dark Phoenix stuff?
2: Maybe I'm not. Yeah, I actually I don't know that which one. Um, which which uh, there, the reason was that they they finally left. But uh, there was
5: an issue that had Colossus ripping a tree out of the ground at the very beginning of it. And the way Byrne drew it, it was effortless because it's colossus. But Claremont put in this dialogue, this like internal dialogue, oh, can I lift this tree? Can I can I can I do this? Am I and he realized at that point that he can do anything on the page that he wanted to, but at the end of the day he's at the mercy of the writer and yeah. the scripter. That can completely change it, and that's that's what I've always kind of heard is that was the literally the the, the tree that broke the camel's back, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly because <laughs> yeah
2: because he works with Claremont on that. And then he goes to the Avengers, uh, works with uh, David. Is it Michelini?
5: Am I right? Mic- Michelini is yeah, how I've heard okay. it pronounced. Yes. And then uh, yes.
2: then he works with uh, Roger Stern. These are great writers, uh, but I think you know they uh, that John's his own guy. So finally, when he finally arrives on fantastic four it's it's him writing and uh and doing the art and i think that's the way it is for most of his career after this
4: yeah now, i think he was also yes. doing the inking as well wasn't
2: he wow like, on, yeah, on he FA. did it all pretty much well that's amazing because he was also wasn't he also doing alpha flight during this time too mm-hmm. yep And I know he did a couple of issues of Indiana Jones, because I have those. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: He also, um, when he left uh, Alpha Flight, he did Incredible Hulk for a little bit. too.
5: Which is a a really underrated run, mainly because it was cut short. Uh, But there is an issue of that where you have the West Coast Avengers fighting the Hulk in this desert town. And it's one of the best Hulk fights ever, because the Hulk is completely savage because of what Byrne did to the character. And I think he also kind of made Leonard Sampson cool again during that run. Mm-hmm. a Because this,
1: this was right before – wasn't this before Peter David took over?
5: Yes, it was. It would have been. You had yeah. Byrne, yes. and then Al Milgram wrote the book for a little while. And then because nobody wanted the Hulk, Peter David started writing it. Yeah, yeah. That's how David Peter David gets most of his gigs, I think. Um
2: uh, and, and and you know that's not a slight on David because yeah. uh, he we could do a show on him and we probably will at some point. Oh, because, Peter!
1: Oh, most definitely. And yeah, you know, but it was interesting because yeah, his burn, his Hulk era was was interesting because he split Banner mm-hmm. and the Hulk basically.
5: And, and it was during that run that it was reestablished that the Hulk was gray at one point. Yes, up until that mm-hmm. point all the reprints of Hulk number one had him as green. Exactly. Burn's like, no, 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 no. There's a history. Because the, the thing we could say about Burn is that Burn has an idea of who that character is. And to him, basically, no other Hulk story needed to take place after Hulk number six for some reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that was, but that was his line in the sand, if I'm remembering correctly.
1: well, oh, exactly. And it was just interesting because... You get the whole Grey Hulk stuff later in Peter David's run with the whole Mr. Fix It stuff. But Byrne was the first one to acknowledge that there was a Grey Hulk.
5: hmm
2: Yeah. And and we already mentioned that uh, you know, before he worked on uh Fantastic Four, he did have a brief like oh, I think I'll work for D C and on Batman and then one issue later he's like, Nope. Um so <laughs> he goes So then he does all this incredible stuff on in Marvel, including we should mention. Uh, I definitely think we should mention. And Alpha Flight, he, he, uh, you know, um, his North Star is um, lar- largely regarded as one of the first openly gay superheroes. He's not as, we'll say, he's not as gay in uh, Byrne's run, but according to John Byrne, he was always meant to be gay. He just couldn't mm-hmm. be quite as open about it back then. So, I mean, that's that's pretty. That's pretty amazing that uh, that, that character is introduced, that he introduces that character. And uh, um, so we have to give him some props for that. And he also um, kills off
1: the main character of Alpha Flight.
5: Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: As he's
4: leaving and, the book. In
5: terms of, of pacing a team book, instead of having everybody together every issue... He had them all together in the first issue and then over the first year you'd have two issues with Northstar and his sister and then you'd have two issues uh which crossed over to the FF and then you had another with Puck and then they're all brought together at the you know in issue 12 where Guardian dies and then through the next Spoilers year from 30 years ago <laughs> huh. Yeah and then through the next year, instead of doing like, you know, two issue stories here and there, he mixed everything up and then had them come back together again at the end of the second year. Uh, and I thought that was a fascinating way to do a team book because really and truly, if you're a government team of superheroes, you're not going to be together every day. You know, the you're going to be, be putting you on different missions and stuff. Yeah. So and you're only yes. going to come together for the big ones. And it was a Canadian super team, which, you know, was kind of novel for us, you know, ugly Americans. But sure. uh, but it, it, it was kind of cool that Canada had their own super force, basically. And, you know, I, I don't think that team was ever as good after Burn was on that
1: book. No, not. No, oh, no, absolutely. No. I agree. Not at that. all. I don't think they've recovered since, truthfully. And I've seen the, you know, I was a huge fan of theirs and I have all their different appearances and no, they haven't recovered.
2: So, uh, so we get to the mid eighties, uh, burn, uh, again, looks to the, uh, looks to, uh, so a few office buildings over and says, I think I want to work for DC just so happens that DC is having a crisis, uh, literally, um, and. (laughs) The <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and Superman is going to be reintroduced to the world. And so, uh, we have John Byrne with the Man of Steel run. Um, Michael, uh, I'm going to just hand this off to you. <laughs> <laughs> this is now the Michael Bailey show.
5: <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to take up too much time, I promise. Uh, in the beginning. But how important, how
2: important in, is, is Byrne's uh, miniseries and then his revamp of
5: Superman here? I don't think you can really uh, gauge its importance. Uh, I, I think Byrne broke a lot of ground with his revamp of Superman because basically Dick Giordano said, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Can you do this? And he had a list of uh, things he wanted to do that he thought they were going to turn down. There was 10 of them. The only one they didn't let him do is he wanted uh, Lara to come to earth with baby Kal-El and and basically have Kal-El as soon as she gets out of the ship uh, so that he would be born on American soil. And then she would die of kryptonite poisoning that was lodged on the ship. And they're like, no, that's weird. We're, you're not doing that. But, wow. you know, he, here's the thing. There is what people say Byrne did to Superman, and then there's what Byrne actually did to Superman. Everyone says that he stripped away all the Silver Age stuff. Not really. A lot of it was in, reintroduced during his run. A lot of people say that he threw the baby out with the bathwater because his krypton wasn't, you know, the Buck Rogers, Rory, Roy Rogers. Oh, roy Rogers, Rogers. Uh, wow! Krypton would be really <laughs> that interesting. That would have
1: been interesting.
5: <laughs> you know, uh, Buck Rogers. Um, you know, Flash Gordon. I don't know sure, I went roy there. Uh, you know, like you know, cool place to live, and he creates what Wendy Peeny at the time said a Krypton that deserved to be destroyed. So, you know, he does everything, but the, the main thing he does is that to him, Clark is the real guy, and Superman is the disguise because he grew up on The Adventures of Superman television series, and there was really no distinction between Clark Kent and Superman with, to George Reeves. It was just, It was just a pair of glasses and a gray suit. So that really kind of revolutionized the character and brought him into the modern era because Superman needed it at that point. I love Kurt Swan's artwork. and I think you know for being on a book for thir- a character for 30 years, you, you, you can't dispute that. But for the audience of the 80s, Burns, Superman made the character. It's why I started reading the character. Because I had read Superman comics in the past, but I never wanted to collect it until his version popped up. And without his version, you don't have the death of Superman. You know, Without him reestablishing the character and then having people pick up that ball and carry it three years later, you're not going to have the success that the character later had. And it's amazing to think that he was on the book from 86 to 88, but he did like five years worth of stories because he was writing and drawing Superman in action. And then he was writing adventures during his second year. And that's like three books. And then they took action away, but I, I really don't think you can underestimate what he brought to the character. What he also brought to the character was a schism in the fan base, because there were people. There are people that I've talked to two years ago that are still mad about it.
1: Oh, well, of course. The thing is, you know, and the only two th- I loved Burns' run on Superman. I thought it was brilliant. The re. Imaging how they made Lex Luthor into, uh-huh. into a businessman and, you know, totally jealous of Superman. And, you know, because he used to be the big cheese in Metropolis and, you know, Superman stole the thunder for it from him. And, you know, I, it made more sense in a lot of ways than the mad scientist Lex Luthor before that. And I like that. The two things I missed from the previous era, they got rid of Superboy. That whole era. And that totally screwed and destroyed pretty much the Legion of Superheroes from that point on.
5: Yes, it did.
1: And then also, I, it made Bruce and, you know, Clark frenemies from that point on, too. They were never the world's true, world's finest like they used to be.
2: Yeah, I think, I don't think that was a John Byrne thing. I think that was. Uh, an editorial thing because that was going on through a lot of titles at that time well so. it was
1: mostly a Frank Miller who introduced it
2: well yeah there, there was he In had, had sown that seed you're right
1: and so that was the first time because before that it was you know all the way from the 1940s you always you had the same relationship between Clark and Bruce but you know but Byrne just pretty much said okay let's here's that bit, bridge let's burn it and pretty much did They were always, you know, the same fighting on the same side, but the different sides of the coin as they, as actually Byrne said in an interview.
5: Yeah. And and it's, it's weird to me because his Superman is, and the Superman that came after is my super, that's what I call my Superman. Uh, And it, it, but it's weird that I grew up on the super friends cartoon for, you know, 11 years up to that point and their best, best of chums. And now they're not, but I am totally okay with both. <laughs> it's it, For an 11-year-old, that was an incredible amount of nuance, <laughs> uh, you know, to be able to keep that in your head. Uh, the Superboy thing is something he disputes because uh, he kind of puts that back onto DC that they wanted to get rid of Superboy and that he wanted to have a... He was okay with getting rid of Superboy as long as he could do a title with a young Superman figuring everything out. And according to him, again, they said yes, and then they said, "But you only have six issues, and then we got to get this thing going." Uh, and ironically, it was that issue that explained wow. the Pocket Universe, were my first two issues of Superman in action.
1: Oh, <laughs> wow! So. So when he killed, um, Zod and
5: everything? No, 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 no. The the Superman Eight in Action Comics number five ninety one.
1: Oh, where the super the death of Superboy.
5: Yeah, and the the funny thing about that is is that the cover of Superman Eight, if you've ever seen it, is a pastiche to his cover for Fantastic Four number two forty nine, where you have Gladiator holding the thing up. And this is where I feel thick-headed. You know, I've I've known for years that that was a takeoff of that, right? So I I love both books. You know, I love Burn. I have both books. If you look at that cover of Superman number eight, there is a invisible character. There is a flaming Hmm. character. There is an intelligent character. And there's a rock (laughs) character that Superman is surrounded by.
1: How about that?
5: I mean, it's just somebody had to point that out to me, and I've never felt as thick as a Superman fan until uh, until that moment. But, but yeah, he, I think he liked Superboy. But I think you know, once that once that horse is out of the gate, you can't put it back in. Yeah, unless you're Jeff Johns.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna um, comment on what you guys said about the uh, schism. I I agreed that I think that there was, uh, you know, a split in the Superman fandom. But I also agree that it did go much further than that into the people who said, I want things exactly the way they were pre-crisis and the ones that said, I'm okay with Mm -hmm. post-crisis. So I think, you know, it was a more of an editorial thing because I can talk to people to this day who will tell me crisis should never have happened.
5: Yeah, I've got a good friend so. that Dick Giordano basically said to his face that Supergirl was a barnacle that needed to be scraped off of the hide of Superman. Wow! And it's just oh, wow. So you know, <laughs> you, you have the you have these creators that uh, you know get into their head that something needs to be changed. Yeah. And and again, you you want to talk about nuance? I love pre-crisis multiverse, but I love the post-crisis single verse. So. I, I, I guess I have a horse in both races is the best way to say that. But yeah, there, there are, you know, more Wolfman saying it was com- too complicated for people. It was just like, come on, Marv, seriously, really? <laughs> if somebody could handle X-Men continuity, they can handle the fact that there's two Batman out there.
2: Yeah, well, and I can remember growing up at the time, like seeing the Justice League and the JSA, like, you know, um, crossing over and battling. And that was fun. And, and having like all these different worlds where you could get different takes on on characters was really interesting. I, When Crisis came out, and we talked about this a long time ago when we covered Crisis on this show, but, um, you know, I didn't think, even at the time, I didn't think it was necessary Um, I thought the story was cool. And, and I get it from an organizational standpoint. We want to just make sure that everything is, you know, organized and put in its own little boxes and it's easier to manage. I get that. But from a kid's standpoint at the time, I was like, Oh, I like all these earths. And when I saw like a lot of them getting destroyed, I was sad.
4: Yeah, so me too.
2: okay so um moving on because again we could do podcasts a whole like you know separate podcast on superman i think
5: someone should look into that michael why don't you uh, uh, i already did it uh, <laughs> it's out there <laughs> from crisis to crisis uh that's been covering from the burn run we're right at the trial of superman right now so it's <laughs> gotcha
2: so, um, so yeah. So, Byrne uh, moves on after you know during the, the, the '90s. Really, uh, from then on, he kind of bounces around. Uh, he spends some more time at Marvel, goes back to DC, does some uh, create your own stuff like back and forth, back and forth. He's kind of a free agent, just doing what he wants to do. Um, I, I will. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts during this time period are uh in the, like for the, i guess i'd say 10 to 20 years um of things that you uh, found interesting i will start by saying that um uh his creator owned uh works it was interesting i think uh doing a dark horse with him forming uh, the legend imprint was at the time pretty awesome uh, I don't know if it really, um, I think the only thing that really amazing that came out of it was that he kind of mentored Mike McNola, and Hellboy was created out of that. Um, and of course, Hellboy is celebrating its 25th anniversary. And we're going to be talking about Hellboy in a couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, so I think that, you know, indirectly, uh, Burns influence there of, is significant. And, uh, I think also, um, I have to talk a little bit about his uh sensational She-Hulk run because he really as much as he thought like as much as he made the the character fit with uh the Fantastic 4 I think his run in the 90s and the beyond of She-Hulk was an amazing run that defined that character and really separated her from you know her male counterpart if you will
1: well that almost started though with his graphic novel he did
5: mhm
1: you know with She-Hulk mm-hmm. and yes you know where you almost got a fully naked She-Hulk in Yeah the- yeah
2: no absolutely and it was it was really cheeky i mean she was at least on the covers and everything she was you know uh she well in the book too she broke the fourth wall it was just a fun fun book Oh,
1: extremely so. And it's his affinity for She-Hulk and making her completely separate from Bruce Banner Hulk. And, you know, and then what they've done later with the character. Don't even get me started. But it was Burn was having fun with her. And she was great because he came back to her a couple times. And each time it's been a lot of fun and he was just having a great time with it and he was it was showing and you know which is nice compared to some of the other comics that he did also in that era you know from like 92 when he created the next men for dark horse
2: right and actually the first appearance of hellboy is one of those issues yep
5: Yeah, the one that you don't find in the 50-cent bin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the few,
2: yes.
1: The only one that it (laughs) doesn't.
5: So
2: so what else during this time period stands out for you? Uh,
4: I love the Avengers West Coast. I am a big Scarlet Witch fan, and I'm a big Vision fan. And while I didn't really care for the way that the uh, Vision wound up looking – I really liked the story of deconstructing his origin and retelling it and bringing back the original human torch. That mm-hmm. was fantastic.
1: Exactly. And it was, it was awesome. And then also the, basically the breaking down of the Scarlet witch. Mm-hmm. Did too. Yes. You know, getting rid of the kids and, you know, the whole thing behind that. And just Byrne was on his game with that kind of stuff.
5: Well, uh, he, he came into that book and it was a weird time for the Avengers because I really think the Avengers took a couple of years to really get back on their feet after the Stern run ended. Uh, Cause you know, Simonson was on it for about for a hot minute and then he went over to the fantastic four and he had Steve Englehart writing the car- the, the book, but Byrne got it for like a year and that was during acts of vengeance. Uh, which is again, something we could do an entire podcast on. Uh, but I, I just think he he brought a, a a dynamism to that team that had not been there both in terms of the writing and the art uh for a while and if anybody wants to accuse superman of having a mullet post coming back from his death check out wonder man's hair during that run <laughs> who but even then wonder man looked amazing he brought in us agent who looked amazing yes. <laughs> it's just that the, uh like, like, like it was said, uh, the the original Human Torch. I love Avengers West Coast number fifty. It is one of my top ten favorite comics of all time. I just I could reread that thing again and again.
4: Mm-hmm. And you know, they even had a subtle title change just to say how different it was. It went from West Coast Avengers to Avengers mm-hmm. West Coast.
1: No, exactly. And you know, it's interesting because you know, burn you know from that time he you know like mike had said he floated around and floated around and he to me he disappeared for a while until he started showing up on idw in the like the last 10 years doing star
5: trek
2: yeah you could definitely tell his love for star trek uh with those uh, original mini series well he's still working on star trek he doesn't mm-hmm. it's weird though what he's doing now is very strange i mean he's he's putting together a picture stories photo like, novels or novels, right where he's taking actual pictures, images from the original series and kind of putting them together in different new stories and it's it, it it's it's cool i'm surprised it's gone on as long as it has though because i thought at first it was kind of a novel idea and now i'm just thinking it's kind of like isn't he gonna run out of <laughs> pictures or something i don't know it's just really it's just bizarre but um, from a guy, for a guy who's like, just, I mean, he's still, I've seen some of the stuff that, uh, you know, he's does as far as commission work, the guy can still bring it artistically. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, granted he probably doesn't want to do a, uh, you know, a monthly book. I, I get that. But, um, um, but yes, I do appreciate his, uh, his Star Trek work. for IDW.
5: I'd also point, uh, three things really quick is one, his Namor run was really good. I love that book. Mm. hmm uh, kind of redefined him for the '90s. Uh, his Wonder Woman run was interesting. I love his Wonder Woman run.
4: Oh, I love his Wonder yeah. Woman run too. Uh, I Wonder Woman that. versus
2: Darkseid. I'm like, come on, mm-hmm. that's just that's it, it. I'm like, why hadn't we hadn't seen that before? It's just amazing.
5: Mm-hmm. And, and at a time where DC was running away from its multiverse past, he did that generations the yep generation yes. series that are just. Just that first one, especially just how much fun that is to read and what a great metatextual commentary it is on the evolution of Superman and Batman in comic book form. Uh, I, I, I am really disappointed that that is never like, they haven't put all three of those together in a, uh, absolute edition. No, Cause I think it would be awesome that, to do. at that, at that size, yeah. oh.
1: <laughs> no, that would be beautiful. Cause and it's cool because they touched on all the different eras mm-hmm. of them and it was it was really fantastically done. And it's a fun book. Yeah. Well, you also have Byrne almost to thank for the new Justice League at the time. You know, because they had what legends that he did also. Yeah. Yeah. And that le- le- and that you know, that brought, you know, Captain Marvel or Shazam who's going to have a movie in a couple of weeks. Uh, basically he'll be, he, they brought him into the DC universe through legends. Cause he was, you know, basically guest starring every once in a while, but they made him a regular character through legends. And that's how it started with the new justice league. Well, as known as the Bwahaha justice league, but, yeah. but it was did, awesome.
5: did you know, but have you guys read the article that back issue did of his plans for a Shazam book? I yeah, that he, would be pretty amazing. He wanted, to, it was 1990, 1990, around that time period. He had pitched, and there's some artwork from it, uh, a A complete revamp of Captain Marvel. And the sticking point was he wanted it to be in its own world. He didn't want Captain Marvel to be in the DC universe. Uh, and that's ultimately what stopped it. But yeah, he, he had a whole pitch and... I forget which issue of uh back issue it's in, but it's it's one of the the earlier issues they have like the greatest stories never told uh with some of that artwork in it. And I think I think if that had gone through um the only reason I'm glad it didn't go through is then we got Jerry Ordway's Power of Shazam series. Right? Exactly. And I, and I won't and I won't trade that for anything. But <laughs> if I was, it would be John Byrne uh, having the chance to re to redo that character. Uh, in his style. Yeah, absolutely.
4: You know, if I could touch uh, real quick back to Wonder Woman real quick. One thing I would want to mention that I really loved about what he did artistically, he brought back with the golden age Wonder Woman by putting Hippolyta in that role. He also had one Wonder Woman with the WW on the costume, the other Wonder Woman with the Eagle. And I thought that was brilliant of bringing that back and making it an end story as opposed to just replacing it the way they did, you know, in the, in the previous pre-crisis. And he also put Donna Troy front and center back into the wonder woman story. So for those things alone, I, I yeah, love
2: that. Absolutely. Ride. He did a lot of great things. And unfortunately we're running out of time. So we can't talk about his crossover between dark side and Galactus. We can't talk Whoa. about his, uh, his working with John Cleese on a Superman story. Um, <laughs> we can talk about uh, Byrne and uh, Claremont uh, uh, getting together with uh, and actually doing them just JLA. Uh, for a little bit, and uh, man, I wish we could talk about it, Spider-Man or, oh, I don't want to talk about that at all actually.
0: No, um, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so if, okay, so for people out there who've just been listening to us uh, just uh, chatter on, if there's one thing that they should pick up about uh, by John Byrne that uh, you should recommend to them, what would it be? We'll, we'll start with you, Kyle.
4: The Dark Phoenix Saga. Okay. Hands down. Yeah.
5: Go for it! All right, Michael Bailey. Uh, I would say you know you would think Man of Steel, but I, I would say the first generation's miniseries. Ooh, I, I think that's a good encapsulation of not only his not only being a fun story, but also being a good example of the, how he can change his style for the era.
2: Yeah, very good. Has that been collected in a in a decent trade? No. Nah, probably not
5: it's out of print there was a, a trade for the first two the third one never got into a trade
2: yeah that's a bummer that's that deserves a. I don't know it's just one of those things because he has a catankerous relationship with everybody <laughs> i mean we don't we you know who knows if we'll ever see that stuff happen but uh mike what about you mike
0: um
1: for me i'd have to say the fantastic four omnibus one that he did it's just amazing stories. If you are have any inkling in wanting to read true classic stories, these are just amazing. And it brought my love back to the Fantastic Four. And thank you, John, for that.
5: And the thing about that is the thing issues are also in there. Yep. So you get those as well, which I think are a nice like a side dish Mm,
1: exactly it's a nice little plus they had some of the crossovers in it and it's just it's awesome i haven't been able to find fantastic
2: four omnibus 2 by john Byrne yet but i will um and uh i'm gonna um i'm gonna say his wonder woman run i know that that's been recently uh collected again so um and that's in a very nice uh trade format too so i'm gonna I'm going to put that out there as well. So, well, very cool. Well, thanks guys for uh, joining us and talking about this uh, legend. He's not done yet. Who knows what could be around the corner for John Byrne. Um, I mean, uh, you know, he might get tired of uh, messing around with his little photos of Star Trek (laughs) and get back into it. Um, And I hear he's doing conventions again. So, so so you Um,
1: can get yelled at by him.
2: Okay. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i i hear he's a kindler and gentler john Burns.
5: yeah he's actually doing interviews again Fire too up. for about 10 years there he wouldn't talk about anything he's already talked about which is why he wasn't on that ff documentary uh that they did when they did the dvd for the first film yeah
2: so so just in time for maybe a new reintroduction movie of uh fantastic four for the movie first, maybe uh We'll get uh, John to uh, participate in something. Who knows? Like I, like I have any control over that whatsoever. But uh, thanks, guys. We appreciate it, and we'll be right back with the ESO Network coming. Same,
4: eh? Yeah. Yeah, he's good. Okay, so good day. Our topic today
6: is... Welcome to a Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about the Netflix show, The Umbrella Academy, Season 1. So I'm going to try and make this more of a summary than a full-on spoiler fest so you guys can watch the show and enjoy it yourself. Well, The Umbrella Academy, based on the comic, is a Netflix show that is 10 episodes long, And each one is amazing. No filler. Each character in this series is unique and interesting and very strange. And you're left really wondering what will happen to each one after each episode. The main story is an eccentric wealthy man adopts seven children who were all born on the same day in October at the same time in a weird way. Their mothers were not pregnant when they woke up that morning, but they all gave birth to children at the same time. He raises these children who all have powers to be a young superhero group called the Umbrella Academy. All but one of the children seem to have powers, like her siblings that were adopted, and she is kept aside from this group. The series now for the show takes place 13 years after the children were the Umbrella Academy, and they're all adults. And so they are all meeting together because their father has died and they all have to come together to say their goodbyes. They also happen to find out during this time that the world is going to end and that they have to stop it. There is a lot of family drama, two really interesting assassins, and lots of really interesting characters with some strange and bizarre powers. This show is a blast to watch and it really defines the word dysfunctional family. Well... Thanks for listening to a Geek Girls Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out.
4: It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And
1: I
5: feel fine.
1: Whoa. Welcome back to the ESO Network Con Report. Con!
2: Well uh this week uh, I love to talk about and review a convention that I was at uh, last weekend. It was Con, and that was in uh Eastridge, I think it's Eastridge, Tennessee, which is just shy of uh, it's actually in between the Atlanta border, Atlanta Tennessee border and uh Chattanooga So it's a very, very small spot, but it's very accessible. So if you're in the Chattanooga area, if you're in Atlanta, if you're in Marietta, for sure, if you're in a lot of places, it's pretty easy to get to because it's right off the the interstate. So you go right off the interstate, boom, there's uh, the arena, Camp Jordan Arena, and uh, that was the the facility. This is the first time ever for this show. So it's a new show. We had uh, some people on to talk about it, uh, Brian and Jacqueline, uh, we had them on, I think that was like in January, to help promote it. And uh, hopefully we did a good job. Um, and uh, Mark is the guy who is, uh, I think he's the main man behind uh, running it. And let me tell you, these people, uh, along with most, uh, everything, everybody, the staff there, uh, particularly another guy named Dustin, were so nice, so helpful. This, this show was well organized. Uh, for a new show, um, maybe it's just because they don't know any better yet. <laughs> but man, they really treated us like family. Um, all the guests—they, uh, it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday show, and uh, and uh, like they they had a lot of great guests. They did a lot of jobs. Uh, they did a good job social market um, marketing social media wise. I would say because uh, I kept seeing for it all over the place. They even had billboards off the interstate leading up to it and everything like that. So I think they did their due diligence. Um, Unfortunately, the attendance wasn't great, but there were a lot of other conventions uh, happening this weekend. Spooky Empire was down in Florida. Um, I don't think it affected them too much, but of course C2E2 was up in uh, Chicago. I believe there was a show in Kentucky as well. And uh, probably various other little things that are always happening. Um, So, And it's a first-year show. A lot of people don't. You know, well, that'll scare a lot of people off. So hopefully, um, you know, I'm going to do my best to make sure that the show has a reputation because they are in it for the long haul. They've already announced that there will be a show next year. So they're looking at uh, I don't know sure if they've announced the dates yet or or I'm sure it's going to be in the same venue. But it was just a it's a it's that it's a great take on a show. They they had a lot of voice actors. Um, so they had some voice actors from Dragon Ball Z. If you were a fan of the animated X-Men show series from the 90s or whatnot, you were in hog heaven because they had uh, two of the showrunners or uh, writers as well as about five or six people from the cast. Um, if you're a cosplayer, if you're into costumes, a lot of great stuff happening. They had a contest that was well attended. They had a lot of great costumes uh, show up. And some great uh, cosplayers uh, as judges, uh, Carly Woods, as well as a few others, uh, were the judges, and uh, and uh, they were uh, they're just phenomenal. They had they had great attitudes. Uh, we saw some great cosplay, and uh, and I met some great people. Uh, I got to hang out and talk to a lot of people. Um, they had music there, so our good friends Ricky and Bambi performed with their band Radio Cult on Friday night. Uh, on Sunday, Ricky and Mammy performed uh, themselves, just the two of them. Well, I should say there's two of them. They always allow for people to come and join them on stage, and that's uh, a lot of the fun of it. So that was happening. And uh, so it was great to hang out with them. And uh, it was just a great vibe to a show, very family-friendly, extremely family-friendly. They had uh, Pokemon events that were for the family. Um, and uh, they also had a, uh, a a donation going on, a donation drive, for uh, a group called pops for patients now i know this is going to be alien to uh this idea is going to be alien to mike faber but um there there's there's uh, an organization that um uh that supports giving away pop figures like you buy them and you give them away and and i know that uh mike you're probably disgusted by this but but hear me out uh the uh the idea is that uh you will, they will then give them to patients kids in hospitals uh to help brighten up okay and uh um through uh myself and the the convention and and Ricky we we got them uh i think they ended up with 175 pop figures to give out to kids um and uh as an incentive a lot of the uh, talent that were there got pies to the face so that was uh, that was a, a fun thing. So um, yeah, so it was great to meet Randy and his crew that that helps distribute that and helps work that out. Uh, so I'm hoping to have him on the podcast as well, so he can tell us a little bit about more about that, and so he can try to convince my favorite to give away all his pop figures.
1: Well, it's for uh, a good cause, so I'm okay with it.
2: Uh, we'll see if that happens. But uh, in any case. Um, I really liked the show. Like, as you can't tell already, um, I thought it was a great, great event. Uh, Like I said, the only thing that was kind of a downside was that there wasn't a lot of people there. Um, uh, there was, uh, I mean, it was a fair number that came on Saturday and even more, I was impressed by a little bit more flowing in on, on Sunday, but, uh, you know, certainly compared to South Carolina com or some of the other shows that we go to they have like a mass amount of people and really get the community out. This one is, is, is start off it it, you know, it stumbled a little bit, but I was glad to hear that it didn't dissuade the, um, the, 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 the runners of the show and that they are committed to, you know, trying to do better and to make the word of mouth. And hopefully the show will become, uh, right up there as one of uh, a lot of people's uh, favorite shows to attend. I think, um, I think it's definitely one to put on your radar. And it's a nice cat, like I said, nice casual atmosphere, and you're not that far from Chattanooga, which is always a fun town to be in. Um, so I would say save the dates for March uh, next year uh, once they finally announce them, and uh, and add MetrothamCon to your their schedule because I think you'll you'll be glad you did. And if you've got a convention that you want us to help promote or review if you want to come on and review a convention that you've been to that you've had a great experience at please reach out to us because we love talking about conventions especially when they're as cool as metropocon
1: so
5: that's going to wrap up another episode of the earth station one podcast mike bailey you've made it sir uh, thank you so much. No, I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. I was glad I noticed the the call to arms that you put out the other day. That's too. Us
1: yes, too. You know, I figured you'd want to be talking about the Superman stuff because of, you know, everything that you do and such. But it was like, I'm glad. It was like I was asking, do you know other stuff by him? And you were like rattling off. <laughs> okay, okay, you're in, you're in.
5: Yeah, the, the- <laughs> Some you of know, the few books I'm keeping of the stuff that I'm selling are all my John Byrne comics. So,
2: well, we, yeah. uh, You know, we, we, we pride ourselves in finding just the right bait
4: in order to trap people into the
1: game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Kyle, it's
4: calling you, man. Yeah. I got caught in the bait too. So there yeah. you go. Exactly.
1: <laughs> but yeah, Kyle kept on liking it and it's like, okay, you're in. Come on. All right. So it's awesome. But Michael, do you have anything you want to shout out about or promote?
5: Uh, just fortressofbailey of uh, Bailey where all my podcasts are. You can, if, if, if you like Superman, you'll find something. If you like Batman, there's plenty there. Or if you like other types of comics, just check out views from the long box.
1: Nope. Totally understand that. And Kyle, thank you, sir.
4: Well, you're quite welcome, and I would direct anybody that wanted to find other things that I'm working on to Discussing Network at DiscussingNetwork.com. We've got a podcast that covers Dr. Who's, we've got another one with comic books, and another one with Star Trek, so yeah, check us out. You no, know,
1: definitely worth I listened to a couple of your shows, so it's- Cool. Glad. Yeah. Thank you. I, I'm your listener. No. <laughs> well, I'm your listener,
4: too, so there you go.
1: All right. You're number 11. It's awesome. That's perfect, man. man. I went to be number twelve. <laughs> well, get more listeners. Tell more friends about it. Then you can be number we'll move you to number twelve. Cool. All right. <laughs> so you have to replace your number to get knocked up to the next one. There you <laughs> go. Hey. Oh wait good that, to me. That actually sounds like the prisoner. Never mind. I don't want to go
2: there. <laughs>
1: All right, Mr Gordon.
2: As always, it's my pleasure.
1: You did it under duress, my friend, but you made it.
2: I did. And uh, I need to give a shout out to to, two. I appeared in other media uh, other than podcasting. And so I need to uh, (sighs) give that a a shout out as well. Uh, The folks at Voyage ATL um, uh, featured myself as a quote unquote thought provoking local artist. Um, uh, for my work on tiki zombie, et etc, so um, they uh, published a, a nice little write up on me with uh, some pictures uh, so that was really awesome. I appreciate that and I really appreciate uh, jasmine king aka the Diamond Duchess for uh, referring me to them uh, and uh, and that's uh, so uh, we 're going to have the link to both of those, uh, both my uh, story and her hers uh, on our show notes as well. And then I also have to give a shout out to Lonnie at the untitled nerd network. Uh, he uh, got myself and Peter on camera to be interviewed, uh, for their Facebook video series. And, uh, we had a lot of fun with that as well. We, we did that recently at the, uh, aforementioned Metrotham con, uh, that we I was at this past weekend. So might be why my voice is a little raw because I did a lot of talking and, uh, you can hear, uh, myself and Peter talk all about some fun stuff with Lonnie on, uh, on that. We'll have a link to that too. Nope.
1: Very cool. Uh, real quick, my shout-out is going to be going out to the WWE. They made an announcement today that for the first time ever, WrestleMania is going to be headlined by a all-women's match. Ooh. Yes. And it is really going to be an amazing match. It's going to be the champion, Ronda Rousey, against Charlotte Flair, and Mike Gordon's favorite, The Man. Just Becky a little Lynch. bit. It's going to be awesome. It is going to be amazing to see. And I'm almost positive it's going to bring the house down. These are three amazing workers. And, you know, the women have been totally proving it and they deserve the headline. They've been blowing the men away for many, many months now in the WWE and their work ethic, their stories, everything has just been culminating towards us and I'd like to see this continue and I'm very happy to see something like this happen. So you could of course find, you know, more wrestling news on our sister show, the uh was it now what do they call themselves? The PWR the
2: PWR spot show. spot show. Yeah, exactly.
1: So yeah, you could find it. They've changed their name a couple of times over the last year. So and I have to change their logo all the time on the website. So every time they come up with a new name, they've got to create something. I think their promo still calls them sells the original name or something. So got to talk to those boys about it, but definitely give them a listen. They're I'm sure talking about all the wrestling news and they've been doing some great innovative stuff, even some live shows at wrestling matches. It's pretty cool. So definitely give them a listen. Speaking of new shows and stuff to talk about, We are going to be coming back again to you next week, and we're going to be starting something new. We're going to actually be introducing our wonderful Ashley Pauls to some movies she's never seen. She did a small series with Mike Gordon uh, for the Patreon, but we are going to be watching next week. We are doing, you ready for this, the 30th anniversary of UHF. That's right, the weird Al classic we are going to be watching it and reviewing it as a you know for a movie segment, so I think that would be a lot of fun. We're going to be doing that throughout the, the year and you know talking about some very classic movies we know she hasn't seen that a few of us you know it's been a few quite a few years since we've seen, so it should be a lot of fun so until then, we will be talking to you all next week. My name is Mike Faber. I will talk to you next time on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace. And we're done. Who's going to get the fire hose? Uh, We're going to give that to Alex Autry. (laughs) You've been listening to the Earth Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. We want to hear from you. Please write us at Station one at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time here on the Air Station One Podcast. Peace, and we're done.
0: This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon, or by shopping through Amazon.com or the T Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.